I told uh, Andy that she won the like scripture reading lottery because she got to say foreskins so many times from a microphone. And so uh, at Citizens, we feel it's important to preach the whole council of scripture, including the uncomfortable and weird ones. And so here we are at Genesis 17. Um, this is our third week in the life of Abram. And one of my main hopes for this series one of the main hopes for myself is that we would be encouraged as we see the development and deepening of Abraham's faith. Um, Abram's faith starts out small in Genesis 12. Um, as it starts small with us, uh, God simply makes a series of promises out of nowhere. He asks Abram to leave his father's house and follow God wherever he takes him, and Abram does. He believes and obeys. It's a very uh, small gesture with tremendous consequences, but still a simple faith. And um, I'm grateful for that beginning, but I'm grateful that it doesn't stay there, that it develops over time. And so we see um, Abram deepen, but then belief and obedience is hard to maintain. And we see that too. The Bible is really realistic about the challenge of faith. Um, and I am grateful for that too, because faith is hard. Um, my faith is challenging. It feels challenging. Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith. It says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so faith requires trusting in things that cannot be seen. Uh, that, is, that is a simple definition, but a basic definition is faith is trusting in things that cannot be seen, not lightly, but with conviction with conviction, believing that those things are true, with assurance. And in Genesis, it's clear that God is actually orchestrating Abram's life with the express purpose of strengthening his faith in God through challenge. Why else would God wait 25 years to give Abram and Sarai a child? If all God cared about was mechanics, if all he cared about was the outcome, then he could have done that really quickly. Uh, but he waits because he wants Abram, Abraham's faith to grow um, to, and, and to grow deeper and more complex. But and then in another way, to, to be simpler, to really just be centered on God. Yahweh is the one who will answer the promises. Um, Abram's story reminds us that we can't rush faith and maturity. Uh, it doesn't matter if he became a believer at the age of 70. Uh, he doesn't get like a fast pass where he gets to suddenly be a wizened old believer. Um, he still has to start at 70 years old as a baby believer with a baby faith and develop over time. It takes him years as it takes us years. There's no shortcut to maturity. Maturity requires time. Depth of faith requires time. But that's one of the big challenges of faith. Time is, is it. Uh, Abram reminds us how hard waiting is on faith, um, that God often calls us to wait. And so Isaiah 40, 31 has always just baffled me, um, still baffles me. I don't feel like I get it. It says that they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. And I just don't feel renewed as I wait. Like often I feel like my faith is waning, it's weakening, the doubts amplify the more I wait. Um, but in God's design, it's those who wait for the Lord that renew their strength. And so, and so we wait. Um, last week, we saw Abraham share this frustration with Yahweh. And so God in Genesis 15 restates his promises, assures him, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. 
But Abraham needs more. He's like, man, I, I need you to stop just saying the same promise to me. I need something um, with more substance. Uh, 15.2, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childish, childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. 15.8, but he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Um, at our midweek gathering, I was appreciative. I think it was uh, Shane who said, man, it, it, uh, Abram's not being rebellious here. Um, he's just asking for help. I believe, help my unbelief. Like it's, we don't need to read like um, disrespect in Abram's tone here. He's just genu- genuinely pleading. Like, I wanna believe you. I wanna trust you. What will you give me to help help you? Help me trust you. Um, and God is faithful to that. Um, to help Abram hold on, he establishes a covenant with him and supports that covenant with the ceremony. And just to recap, um, so to catch us up, if you weren't here last week, here's one commentator's explanation of that ceremony. Uh, if you remember, Abram uh, cut up some animals and set them alongside, and then and they were supposed to walk through it. And so this uh, commentator, um, at the conclusion of a covenant agreement, it was sometimes the custom for the parties to walk between the pieces of a torn up animal. And this served as a kind of acted out curse what they were saying was, if I break the covenant, may I be torn to pieces like this animal. But in God's covenant with Abram, only one of the parties passed between the pieces, God himself in the form of a blazing, smoking torch. This was a totally one-sided covenant. It depended entirely on God for its fulfillment. Do you see how amazing this was? God, the ever-living one, was saying, I would rather be torn apart then see my relationship with humanity broken, the relationship that I have promised to establish through Abram's descendant. It's a wild ceremony. It's a wild promise that God would put everything on the line for Abram. Nothing would stand in the way of human redemption, not even Abram himself. Some people um, describe this as an unconditional covenant. So that as God walks through the path alone, not asking Abram to walk through it with him. This shows us that God's relationship with and love for Abram is unconditional. That no matter what Abram does, God still loves Abram. God will save him even if Abram remains unfaithful. And that this is grace. Grace is unconditional love. But that's not exactly true. Uh, That is oversimplified. Abram's story taken all together shows us that God's love for Abram is not strictly unconditional. Because if Abram fails to remain faithful, uh, he will not be saved. What Andy read this morning was that if he did not uh, circumcise, did not receive circumcision, if anyone in the camp did not receive circumcision, they will be cut off from the covenant. They would be cast out. And so there are conditions Abram must meet to remain in relationship with God. So that if Abram refuses to follow God and obey him, if he tires of it, if he decides to do his own thing, uh, God would be released from his promise to bless him. And we can see that condition later in Genesis 22, after the near sacrifice of Isaac, which we'll talk about more in depth next week. But God says to Abram, after uh, Abraham almost sacrifices Isaac um, at God's command. Uh, God says in verse 16, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, 
because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Because you have done this, because you have been faithful, because you have proved your love for me, because you have proved your trust for me, I will bless you and multiply you. If the promises were unconditional, then how can God speak this way? He wouldn't. It seems that if Abraham had refused to sacrifice Isaac, which would have been a totally reasonable thing in many ways to think like, oh, I I just can't do that. That's too much. If he had refused, then Genesis 22 implies that God would have clearly not blessed him and withheld blessing from him. And this shows that Abraham's blessing was conditioned on his continued faithfulness, even exceptional faithfulness. Now, how do we reconcile that with the rest of the story? Because when I preached on Genesis 12, that part of it was that God just promised it. He didn't ask Abraham to do anything. He just said, go and I will bless you. I'll take care of it. I will make you fruitful. I will uh, make you a blessing to the nations. In Genesis 15, Yahweh walks alone through the halved animals. And if Abram didn't participate in that ceremony because God was the one who would do it. And so how is God's blessing still conditional on Abram's obedience? Well, it is still conditional. God expects Abram to remain faithful. Salvation is by faith through grace, not of works. But the difference is that God has taken it upon himself to guarantee that Abram meets that condition. He will work such in Abraham's life that Abraham will be faithful. And so Ephesians 2, you are saved by grace through faith, not of works. And that faith itself is a gift of God. I will give you the faith that you need to remain faithful. God himself will make sure Abram is faithful. And so do you hear the difference there? That it's not unconditional. It's not truly conditional. It's a a more complex relationship. He's not eliminating the requirement that Abraham obey God to receive his blessing. He's eliminating the possibility of failure. That ultimately Abraham will succeed. And we see that in his life. We're amazed at Abraham's faithfulness at the end of his life, which is not there at the beginning. But Abraham still must obey. God, like an all-good and all-powerful father, will make sure he obeys. Picture a boss who hires you to do a job that you are completely incapable of doing. And it's not because he owes you anything. It's not because he sees some spark in you that, man, um, I think you can be an asset to me or anything like that. It's just because this person, this boss has set his heart on you. You are the one he wants for the role. Now, what are the boss's options if he wants you, but you're incapable of fulfilling the role? He could just pay you and let you do nothing right? Either letting the job remain undone because because the boss doesn't really care about it or doing the job himself and just letting you receive the benefit where you just sort of loaf around. But there's not really any glory in that story. Like that's not a beautiful story. That's not a good and true loving story. Isn't it more glorious, more beautiful, more loving? If we were to turn that story into a movie and if we were writing it, we would, we would have the boss working with you 
working alongside you, laboring and teaching and mentoring you for however long it takes until you're actually competent and able to do the job so that both you are proud and he is proud. And isn't that what we want for ourselves? Isn't that what the boss would want? And so when God, the ultimate boss, right? God is the ultimate boss, the master, the king of kings. When he calls Abram to be his son, a royal son representing him before the world, an ambassador for Yahweh, he calls him to do the job well. He wants him to do it well. He envisions him and his descendants flourishing and the world flourishing through him. And God's not going to settle for anything less for Abram's sake or for God's sake or for the world's sake. And so God labors with Abram for years and years and years with his people for millennia so that they would be the people that he created them to be. Patiently, God patiently shapes circumstances so that his faith is strengthened so that he could finally say at the end of his life, because you have done this, I will bless you. You know, the New Testament talks about, you know, Paul going and receiving the word, well done, my good and faithful servant. God will be able to genuinely say that over you. He will genuinely say that. He won't be lying. He won't be being extra nice. He'll be able to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And we'll be able to say back to him, all glory to you. All glory to you that that is really true. It's because of you. And that's the relationship. That's the covenant relationship that God's after. Unconditional love is just too simplistic a description for God's covenant with Abram. God's relationship with Abram is much more than that. The covenant of salvation requires faithfulness from both parties, but God in his mercy guarantees man's faithfulness. This is really the part of the covenant that is emphasized in Genesis 17. And so we have like a, we have a new covenant ceremony that sort of completes, it's not a, it's not a new covenant. It's not like God made a covenant in Genesis 15 that was unconditional. And now Genesis 17 is conditional. It's all the Abrahamic covenant, but we sort of get two parts to it. Um, And so Genesis 17 really highlights the call for Abram to remain faithful. And you can hear that in the way it begins. Verse one, when Abram was 90 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you. You can see here the condition in that. Walk before me and be blameless so that I can make this condition or this covenant with you and may multiply you greatly. Genesis 12 lays out God's call. Genesis 15 emphasizes God's grace that God would make Abram fruitful. And Genesis 17 emphasizes Abram's faithfulness. Before um, God speaks in Genesis 17, the narrator reminds us that where we are in the story, and so we should back up and what's the context, what happened in chapter 16 between 15 and 17. So Abram is now 99 years old. He'd walked with God for 24 years. 24 years, he still didn't have the promised son. And that's wild. Many of us haven't been Christians long enough to be able to pray for something for 25 years. We don't know what that's like. Um, Some of us do. Only Abram in the story, it's hard to remember because we sort of see the whole thing, but um, Abram at this point in the narrative probably had stopped praying for a promised son because he thought he had it. He thought he had a promised son 
In chapter 16, we learn about the birth of Ishmael, Abram's son by Hagar, Sarai's slave. And so you flash back 13 years. Uh, Sarai, Abram's wife, was tired of waiting for a son. She was 76. Abram was 86. And they, it just seemed like, man, we're not going to have a son the normal way. And so she came up with a new plan. Chapter 16, verse 1 and 2. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And as shocking as this is to us, this would have been a normal um, pre-Jewish um, ancient Near Eastern practice. Um, it wouldn't have been uncommon. And Abraham listened to Sarai. Uh, and so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. Now, this episode gets worse as we move along, but we already know, it's already pretty obvious that this is a bad idea, um, that this is not God's idea, first of all. If this was God's plan, like, why didn't he do this earlier? Like, it, 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 it didn't feel like this is what we're waiting 10 years in Canaan for, for someone to realize, oh, why don't we do this really normal thing that everybody does? Like, that's not really any hint that we got. We got the hint that God was going to do something miraculous, and this is not miraculous in any way. Um... God wasn't just waiting for Sarai to have this idea. And it's also clear in the text that Sarai has just grown impatient. She doesn't receive this as from the Lord. She's tired of waiting. She blames the Lord for her infertility. And, and really, she should blame him. He is the one who has the power to change. But she doesn't take up her grief with him. If she had taken up her grief with him, maybe it would have gone like Genesis 15. Um, where God would have responded in an encouraging way. But rather than taking her frustrations to God, she just goes around him and takes matters into her own hands. And the thing is, it works. Her idea works. Abram, had, Abram at 86 has a son. Hagar becomes pregnant. Abraham will finally have a son, but it backfires on Sarah. Genesis 16, 4, When Hagar saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarai dealt harshly with her and Hagar fled, ran away from her. It's, it's hard to know exactly the dynamics at play here, but regardless, it's toxic. This is a terrible situation, right? And so you don't know if Hagar, a young Egyptian woman, was resentful because she had been objectified, forced to marry and have sex with an 86-year-old man so that he could have a son. Maybe that is what Hagar is. That's, maybe that's where her contempt is. Was Hagar resentful because she was still treated like a servant, even though she's technically a wife now? She's been promoted to one of Abraham's wife. And not only that, a favored wife, because she's the wife who was able to deliver the son. And Sarai is left. Um, Sarah thought she could gain a son through Hagar, but that's not how polygamy works, right? She didn't gain a son. Abram gained a son. Hagar had a son, but Sarah is left childless. She still remains childless. Polygamy is a terrible institution. It's forbidden by God's law. It leads to the objectification of women. 
And like so many objectifying institutions, it often pits one victim against another. And so that's what you have here. Whereas the man sort of like comes apart and says, oh, it's not my problem, it's your problem. And, it, and they're left to deal with it. It's a terrible institution, uh, should not be practiced. It is practiced throughout the world. It should not be practiced in any way. There are also clear allusions in this story to the Exodus experience, right? It's the reverse where Sarai, the Israelite, is abusing and oppressing the Egyptian slave girl. So that would have been super surprising to the Israelites who heard this story. They would have realized that this story is from their past, that they weren't so different from their Egyptian oppressors. Regardless, though, as you read this, we don't know exactly like all the dynamics at play. It's very clear that this is not the way Abraham is supposed to be. This is not the way God's chosen people are supposed to act. And this is why God appears to Abram, reminding him to walk before me and be blameless. Remember the terms of the covenant. When I called you, I specifically told you that you were to be a blessing to those around you. That the nations were supposed to learn who God was through your behavior. And you have this Egyptian slave girl in your house and she is not learning who I am and what I am like. And so by that standard, this is an utter failure. But as in the Exodus, so here when man fails to care for the marginalized, God does swoop in, God cares, God hears. So verse seven, the angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. A harsh, hard command it takes a great deal of faithfulness for Hagar to return. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. It means God hears. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and every's hand, everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. I think this is the first time that a human being gives a name to God, um, which is really beautiful that Hagar is the one who has that privilege the first time recorded. For those who have been failed by God's people, and there are many, many throughout history, Hagar's story is a really encouraging one. God hears and God cares. He doesn't abandon his chosen children, no matter how terrible they are, but neither does he ignore their behavior. God is a God of justice, even when the church fails to be just. His hands are not tied by Christian behavior. He's not unable to step in and make things right, and that's what he does. And, and it's important as we read this story to remember that Ishmael is part of God's plan for the world. He is part of God's redemption plan, just as much as Isaac is. If God didn't want Ishmael to be born, he would have intervened like he's done so many times. But God had plans for Abram through Ishmael. Ishmael's circumcised. He receives the sign of the covenant. Right? He's a true child of Abraham. Ishmael and the 12 princes and peoples who descended from Ishmael are loved by God. He receives a prophetic blessing. God assures Hagar that Ishmael would be a wild donkey of a man, which means that he'll be free in a way that you're not free. 
You are a slave now, but your child will be free and his people will be free. He will not be under the hand of others, but he'd be independent. He'd be able to defend himself against all future oppressors. And so in the story, Ishmael is not Abram's mistake. No matter what Sarai thinks about him, his name means God sees, making Ishmael a constant reminder of the ever-watching heart of God. And Abram grows to love Ishmael. No matter how it happened, Ishmael is the son Abram always wanted. And so begins Genesis 17. Abram is the proud dad of a 13-year-old boy. And then seemingly out of nowhere, God announces himself. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. I am powerful. I am in control. I do whatever I want. I do whatever I say. Walk before me and be blameless. To walk before God means to go ahead of God representing him. Um, representing his rule and his goodness and his justice on earth as an ambassador, an example. And that's why Abram has to be blameless because he's representing a blameless God. And the implication here is that Abram needs reminding of this. He has not consistently walked before God and been blameless. He has forgotten his role. And Genesis 16 is the most recent example of that. With Sarai and Hagar, he did not show trust in God. He did not wait faithfully. He tolerated the abuse of someone in his household. The world does not learn who God is by watching Abram's family. And so in response to God's stern word, Abram falls on his faith. He's speechless. He, He immediately knows God is right. And God continues, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And so every time God renews the promise, he makes it bigger. And so now he's not talking about one nation, but a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God changes his name to Abraham, because he won't just be the father of one great nation, but many. And so this foreshadows the announcement of Isaac. He won't just be fruitful. He's going to be exceedingly fruitful. This is what God will do. But unlike last week, Abraham has a part in the ceremony, um, an unpleasant part, right? And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. There's a condition on our relationship. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, it's important to know that circumcision isn't just an idea God just like dreamed up where he's like, you know how I created penises? I actually want you to change that just for fun, just to like show that it's really hard. Like that's not what he's gonna, that's not what he's doing. It's a, it's a, a global practice that you can find all over the world. And then in particular, in um, Abraham's experience and in the Israelites' experience, they would have been familiar with Egypt who circumcised priests and kings. Those were the people who received circumcision. And so they would have known that as a unique thing. And so in Abraham's day, circumcision was a religious rite, widely practiced, 
But the specificity there for kings and priests was important because by asking Abraham to undergo circumcision, he was reminding Abraham who he was. You are the king, a son of a king. You are a priest. You have a role to fill. You represent me, Abraham. I'm asking you to walk before me and be blameless as any good priest should do. And I don't ever want you to forget it, how this sets you apart from every other people on this planet. What's especially different about Jewish circumcision though, is that every male is circumcised, everyone. So not just Abraham, he's not the only priest here, not just Ishmael and Isaac, everyone, not just the direct descendants or Hebrews, foreigners in your midst, slaves that you purchased, whoever is considered a part of your household is to take on the mantle of being a royal priest. After just eight days of life, you don't need to wait to make sure that everything's okay. You don't need to make sure that you just pick the smart ones or the holy ones. After just eight days of life, no matter who you are, slave or free, Jew or not, if you count yourself part of Abraham's household, you are a priest from birth. And you can't undo it. It's a permanent mark. You can't go back on it. There was no one who didn't represent God to the world. And so this is a restart of the call of Adam. That's who Adam was. He created in the image of God, Adam and Eve, in the image of God and in the likeness of God. And so circumcision emphasizes again that God's relationship with his people was not without expectation. There were obligations on both sides. God chose Abram for a distinct role to walk before him and be blameless. He didn't earn that role. So election is unconditional, even if salvation has conditions. Salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, but works are not unimportant. God is blessing Abram to be a blessing. And circumcision makes that blessing more specific. He is to intercede for the nations to God. And he is to um, implore the nations on God's behalf, appeal to the world for God. So far, Abraham hasn't said a word. Uh, He's humbled, sober, chastened, ready. Uh, But God keeps talking, and this is where Abram pipes up. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. And so circumcision obviously emphasizes the importance of, um, or the, it's, it's a right that's only applied to men, but then Sarah comes, Sarah and women come to be a part of this too. Kings of peoples shall come from her. She is a queen. And this surprises Abraham though. Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah who is 90 bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Abraham had moved on from the hope of a son through Sarai. He had moved on hoping for, for a miracle. He had stopped hoping for a miracle settled for Ishmael, the mundane ways of the world. And Ishmael was fine. He was a great kid. Why can't Ishmael be the promised one? But God says, no, no, but Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac, which means God laughs, means laughter. 
I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, so not kings, but princes. He's still a big deal. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear. And so remember how God begins chapter 17. I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. And what is almighty about Sarah's scheme to get you a son through Hagar? There's nothing almighty about that. That's not how God works. That's not how humanity will be redeemed. God gets no glory from such earthly schemes. He gets glory from miracles. He gets glory from choosing Abraham and Sarah. He gets glory by creating life from death. He gets glory from laughter. That's the kind of redemption that he's after. A a redemption that we would laugh at because we can't believe it. And that's why he waits for 25 years from his initial calling, because he wants it to be clear to Abraham and to us that God saves when nothing else will. Peter Gentry writes, the reason for the 14 year lapse between chapter 15 and chapter 17 is that Yahweh wants a covenant relationship in which Abraham really knows and understands who God is and is faithful and loyal in precisely that level of understanding. Not until Abraham has tried everything in his own strength and is completely powerless will he know God is El Shaddai. And so this is the way of faith, waiting for the Lord to do what only he can do. Not settling for human effort, human schemes, human ways, but waiting for God to fulfill his promises his way. Waiting for God to make us laugh in joy. And while waiting to live as ambassadors, to faithfully walk before the Lord and to be blameless. It's still the call of Christians. And so uh, with the New Testament, circumcision passes as a requirement. It's not a requirement for every person who joins into the church. But Paul, uh, what Paul talks about is the circumcision of heart, the circumcision of soul, that we're still supposed to be a priestly people a royal priesthood, living blamelessly before others, pointing people to the reality of God. It's a call we're unequipped to carry out on our own, but God has promised to make us able. He will finish the good work he began in Abraham. He will finish the good work he began in us. All our failures are taken care of in Jesus, who died for sin so that he could fulfill his duty as judge and take up his joy as father. And so this isn't quite unconditional love in the way that our world um, will often speak it. But isn't it better? Isn't it better, the best of both worlds? Because it's a perfect love which drives out fear because there's no condemnation. Christ has taken on all our sin. And so we are free. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But then with this condition of faithfulness, this condition that comes with a promise that I will I will finish the work. That means that salvation has no fear, but it also offers hope that we can change. We can be changed. We can be renewed. We can be holy. We can be clean. We can be healed. We can be instruments of God and agents of peace. God will do that work in us as he has done with Abraham. And so when we think about the gospel of grace through faith. Do we want God to love us unconditionally, meaning that he doesn't really care 
If you continue in brokenness and sin, he doesn't really want you to do anything. You're fine just the way you are. Or do you want God to love you so much that he labors alongside you? Like a good father changing you into who you were created to be, calling you into his service. Which is the better love? This is the better love. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for the story of Abraham. We're thankful for the ways that we can find ourselves in every part of his life. We can find ourselves in Genesis 12 with a simple call of faith, just going and following, not really knowing what's going on. We're thankful that we can find ourselves in Genesis 15, asking for assurance, and then you giving us such tremendous promises and guaranteeing those promises with your own life, walking through the path, promising to meet your own conditions, um, but also to meet ours, uh, to forgive us where we fail. But then we also are really thankful for Genesis 17 that you're not, you don't leave us to our own schemes. You don't leave us to our own ways, but you call us to a life of flourishing, of abundance, of holiness and purity. You call us of all people, Abraham, of all people after so much failure, so much embarrassment, but you're not embarrassed. And you still call him and say, walk before me. I want you to represent me before the world. Be blameless. Father, help us to respond like Abraham and to immediately do what you ask us to do, to humbly step into this world that's so much bigger than we can handle, but by grace through faith, we're able to stand in it because Jesus stands ahead of us and in us and with us and behind us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.